Well, good morning, everyone. I love that our Go Teams trips give us a chance as a church to be involved in what God is doing around our world. Uh, I personally have been going back and forth to Zambia about eight or nine times, and that trip is always a highlight of the year for me personally. And then, then a lot of what I do here at Brookside is I, I spend a lot of time with guys, with dudes, so I'm excited that we are offering this men's uh, retreat slash missions trip that's coming up this summer. And, and, then, and then really just want to reinforce what, what the team up, up here just said, that these trips are such a great way to, to, to see what God is doing around the world, to, to partner with, with missionaries and people we support over in just some really cool places where, where great stuff is happening. And then also just to create space in our own lives when we clear our schedules for a week or two weeks to focus very intentionally on serving God, um, on, on just partnering with him and what he's doing in this world. God works in us and through us in those ways that, that just cannot be duplicated anywhere else in my experience. So, so if you're on the, on the fence about filling out that tear off or if you're on the fence about being on the fence about filling out that tear off, really encourage you just to get more information. That's all it is. Uh, and then you'll be hearing back and you can make your decisions from there about some of those trips. Well, this morning we are continuing the series we're calling Dear Church where what we're doing is we're taking a look, uh, a look at, at letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to churches in the first century to encourage and shape and strengthen these churches. And, and we know the value of these letters didn't stop back then in the first century. These letters are still so valuable at encouraging and shaping, uh, shaping, shaping and strengthening, strengthening us today, right? Our, our church and also us as individuals. And so, so I want to come to, to this series and to our talk today in Romans very eagerly and very expectantly to see what God has for us in and through his word today. And the letter we're looking at this morning is, uh, is the book of Romans. And this is such a great letter. If you've been around church world long enough, you know that in the book of Romans, so many of Paul's theological themes come together. This is kind of like a magnum opus of Paul's, where, where, where all these theological themes that he's brought up, little bits and pieces here and there, come together in Romans. Or, or you know that many of your go-to verses that you lean on often are in Romans. Or if you're new to church, if you're here seeking, let me get Romans on your radar screen in a big way this morning. Because after one of the Gospels, one of the Gospels like, like Mark or like John, for example, Romans is on this very short list of books that I, will, I would want to introduce people to very early. So that way they can understand and really dig into what Christianity is all about. Romans is, is kind of one of those books. And the place we're going in Romans this morning is the second half of Romans chapter 8. Really excited to get into that here in just a second. But also want this to whet your appetite for reading through Romans this week as part of our 365 plan where we're encouraging everyone to read through Scripture. How great would it be, wherever you're at with that plan, if you're, if you're on track, if you're a few days behind, start with, with reading through Romans and that will, be, that will be a success for this week. So I so encourage you to do that. Well, let me set up the second half of Romans this way. In a few weeks, uh, Carrie's and my twin boys, we got, we got four boys and twins are our youngest, they are going to be celebrating their eighth birthday. And we're certainly excited to celebrate them on this day coming up in November and, and to do whatever party thing it is that we're going to eventually plan and decide to do. 
But one of the great things about kids' birthdays is, is that about three months before the birthday, as parents, if you're a strategic parent anyway, you, you can kind of play what I basically call the, the pre-birthday toy aisle pass, is what I call it. And, and you guys know what I'm talking about. With little kids, whatever store you go to, eventually they're going to ask to go to the toy aisle of that store. Or, or even if they don't ask, kids have this proximity sensor that's been built into their brains that, like, you just turn around and you get a jug of milk or some dog food, and their proximity sen- sensor has already gone off, letting them know that they're close to the toys, and so you just see them wandering aimlessly towards the Legos. Or, or even if you get past the toy aisle, when you check out after a frazzling shopping trip, with kids, because shopping itself is frazzling, right, guys? And then shopping with kids can sometimes be frazzling. Once you get there, there's this other go-around of holding up two ninety-nine disposable toys and kids saying, hey, can we get this? Even though they didn't even know it existed or knew they wanted it until they saw it. Well, in any of these situations, we know these are very real, the pre-birthday toy aisle pass comes in handy. Because when you find your kids heading to the Lego aisle, and they want the newest Lego set to add to the 1 million and 13 Legos they already have, or when they're holding up that 299 disposable toy, here's what you can say as a parent. You know what, guys? Your birthday is coming. Why don't you put that on your list? If you're a new parent here, you are welcome. That's the best parenting advice you're going to get all day, right? I've just helped you out in ways you don't even know how I've helped you out yet. But, but, but we know why this works, right? Because, because, uh, because suddenly we have introduced hope into the situation for these kids, right? So, so there's no puppy dog eyes. There's no tears. There's no pleading. There's no three-point argument by your future lawyer child about why we need this additional Lego set. No, we've, we've introduced hope and we've reminded them that a better day, their birthday, is coming up soon. And then, and then our kids know that they can trust us to follow through with, their, with these promises, right? They know that we care for them, that we're for them, and that we're planning some sort of day for their birthday that's going to be special. And so because of, of what they're hoping for, their birthday, and then because of who they're hoping in, us as their parents, they can endure this trip to the store without picking up a new toy. And if we're, if we're good parents, this toy aisle pass isn't just some manipulative play to make our lives easier. Though, legitimately, it does make our lives easier, right? But, but this also really does offer authentic hope into the situation. We're we're offering authentic hope because we we really do know that the birthday celebration we're planning is so much better than any $2.99 toy they're going to get next to the Snickers and the Twix. We we really do want to be trustworthy as parents. So that way our kids already know that we're for them and we're planning a day that's going to be awesome. And so this same idea of authentic hope is exactly what we find in the second half of Romans chapter 8. We see it right away in verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says that that I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
And so, so right away, we, we want to appreciate that Paul doesn't glance by our present sufferings. Right? Paul knows and we know, you know, that there's stuff that's going to happen in and around your life that is tough and, and tougher than anything you would ask or imagine. But as Paul acknowledges the reality of these very present, very real sufferings, and then as he stacks that up against with the future glory that God has for everyone who follows him, Paul says there's no comparison, right? Our present sufferings, as real as those are, they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then Paul goes on and on and on in this whole chapter, showing us what followers of Jesus Christ are hoping for and showing us who followers of Jesus Christ are hoping in. And in all of that, he's just driving us to this big idea. If you're taking notes, here's what to write down. That knowing Jesus offers incomparable hope. Knowing Jesus offers incomparable hope. And we live in a world that needs this sort of hope. Some of us here today, right now, need this sort of hope. I was talking with someone just this last week about, about the whole election climate and the political situation of our nation and, and all that sort of stuff. And we were just talking kind of water bottle or water cooler talk about it, I guess. Um, and, and just in the, in the course of this, this casual conversation, this friend of mine, he says, Tim, the whole situation, his words were, were deeply troubling, is the phrase to, that he used to describe the, the whole situation around the election, politics, all that sort of stuff. And, and I would guess that there's a whole lot of you here this morning that are nodding your heads in agreement to that assessment. It doesn't, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you sit on. As you think about the election and our, our whole political climate, that the feelings that are just welling up inside of you, it's not hope. It's despair or concern or anxiety a lot of times. I mean, just watch enough news and you'll see that, but it's not hope. Or maybe something happened in your life just this last week or this last month that has turned your world upside down and you are still calibrating to the new reality that you're living in. That the present sufferings that Paul mentions in Romans 8, they're, they're two inches in front of your face. And they're the only thing that you can think about. And so we live in a world that desperately needs hope. And at Brookside, we serve the God who offers hope. I love bringing this up with people because as I interact with others, uh, sometimes people are sitting in my, in my office with some sort of difficulty they're going through, some sort of relational conflict. Whatever the situation is, one of the things I'm always looking for the opportunity to do is just ask myself, Tim, how can you bring hope into this situation? This, this hope doesn't mean there's still things that won't need to be faced and addressed and, and sometimes worked on. But once people grasp this hope, or, or even once people glimpse this hope that the God of the Bible can redeem situations and offer hope no matter what the scenario. Once people glimpse that even, it changes the way they enter into whatever it is they're up against 
and facing. One book I was reading this last week nailed it. This quote said, Christianity provides more hope than anything. That's it. That's what we need to keep in front of us. That's what we need to keep reminding ourselves of. Christianity offers more hope than anything. And this morning from Romans 8, I want to show us why and how and keep that hope in front of us. Knowing Jesus offers incomparable hope. So, so as we keep reading Romans chapter 8, the first place Paul takes us is what we're hoping for. And, and one of the highlights for me in showing you this passage is that one of the things that Christians really are hoping for isn't the thing a lot of people think Christians are hoping for. A lot of people think that the ultimate Christian hope is us in some spirit body floating on a cloud in a robe playing a harp for, e- for eternity, you know. I, I don't know how that stereotype got fed, but all of us have probably seen something that feeds into that picture of this quote-unquote ultimate hope that is held out for everyone who follows Jesus. Well, well, this morning in Romans 8, Paul says that hope sounds boring compared to the real hope God has for everyone who follows Jesus. We see instead that our hope isn't Tim Wiebe sitting with wings playing a harp in some spirit body forever, which is great that that's not our hope, right? We see instead that our hope is in a very physical, very restored creation where everything and everyone who's there is exactly the way it's supposed to be. That's the hope that we have out in front of us. So let's see it. Romans 8 verse 19 is where I'm going to start. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the the creation, again there's that word, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation would itself be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And so there's clear emphasis here. Even, even in just these few verses, that the hope that God has for us is as big and as panoramic as all of creation that's going to be renewed, right? Creation, creation, creation. Three times in a few verses, God says, no, if your hope is you sitting on a cloud playing a harp, it's not big enough. Our hope is big enough to encompass this perfectly restored, very physical creation. And then we keep reading. In verse 22, Paul says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so, so here in these verses, we're starting to see more and more that, th- th- that this hope for a renewed creation, it also means something very specific for all of us as individuals, for you and for me. The words Paul is piling up to describe our future bodies are so great. Words like freedom and glory and the redemption 
of, of our bodies, of the stuff that we're made of. All this language is Paul's way of saying that a day is coming when our bodies won't deteriorate with age. Our bodies won't be plagued by sickness. We won't have to fear disease or that diagnosis. No, Paul says a day is coming when our bodies will be healthy and they'll be strong. And a day is coming when our bodies will stay healthy and they'll stay strong. Or a little further down, just, just write down verse 29. Paul points us forward to this time when, when the language he uses there, he says, we'll be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's not a physical statement saying what we'll look like. No, what Paul is saying here is he says that one day still future, when we're fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our desires will no longer be torn between doing what God wants on the one hand and struggling with sin that persists in us on the other hand. A day is coming when, when our character and our virtue will be so shaped that we will love the way that Jesus loved. And we will want the things that Jesus wants perfectly for eternity. That's hope. I love how this hope is expressed in verse 23 where, where Paul says that we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship is the language that he uses there. What Paul is talking about here is our full adoption as God's children. When our identity as adopted sons and daughters of, of God, they are fully and publicly made known. And even if we, even if we haven't adopted kids ourselves, we can all picture something of what it must be like to finally have that adoption process complete and, and to see these children that we have been knowing we'd be adopting, right? See these children now finally in our family for, for that document to be official and for their identity as, as now in our family, having our last name, for it to be public and visible and done. I found a short video on YouTube of this this last week that was just good for me to picture this. So let me try to paint this picture for you. This, this video of, of a family gathered together for Christmas with just a whole lot of little kids sitting on couches around the Christmas tree in their living room. And some of the kids may have been foster kids. Or I don't know what the situation was exactly. But there was, I think, three kids that were, that were there among, among the other three or four kids that were receiving adoption papers as a gift for Christmas that morning. And so you see these three kids that weren't part of the biological family open up this present that contained the actual adoption papers saying that, that now you are part of this family, right? Now it's done. And then the whole video is great. There's people hugging and there's, there's emotion and there's tears. But for me, the best part of that video is just little, little glimpse of, glimpses of dialogue that you got. I wrote some of them down because of how great they are. So, so the dad, he hugs this oldest elementary school child that's now his son. Now he's the dad to this kid. And he says, it's official. You're one of us now. Or, or after the mom hugs the elementary aged child, mom hugs him and she just says, forever and ever. That is hope. That's the hope 
that we have to look forward to as we look ahead to our public, visible, full, official adoption as sons and daughters of God in restored bodies, redeemed bodies, renewed creation. And so, so that's the hope I want to hold out for us this morning as followers of Jesus. That's the hope that this morning I want even to sustain you and motivate you. Because I know there's, there's a lot of people in a congregation this size that, that are going through some potentially very difficult times. And, and even though I wish I could <laughs> a lot, I can't snap my fingers and make your situation different. Right? Th- th- there's nobody that can snap their fingers here on earth and make the circumstances of your situation differently. But, but hopefully you've, you've had lots of examples of the church coming around you giving you support. And so, so just one more thing I want to do this morning is just, just keep hope in the equation for you. So, so alongside with all the physical care that I hope you've received, all the, all the attention and the love that you've been shown through whatever it is that you're facing, I just want to remind you that our God is a God of hope. And I want to remind you on, on the authority of what we've seen here in Romans 8, that our God is a God that offers incomparable hope. And then the thing that we do not want to miss as we use this language of hope and saying that God is a God of hope, we do not want to miss the fact that this, this hope is not some cross your fingers, boy, I sure hope it works out that way, but I might be disappointed kind of hope. The hope that God holds out for us is really, is is confidence is what it is. It's assurance. There's no question that that there's not going to be disappointment at the end. It's going to be better than we think, not a letdown. That's the sort of hope that we have in front of us. And this incomparable hope then is assured and secure. And the reason that, that I can say this so confidently is because of who we're hoping in. As we look closely at Romans 8, we see Paul talking a lot about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Paul roots the strength of our hope in nothing less than the identity of the triune God himself. That's how strong our hope is. And there's so much on this point in the second half of Romans 8. When you read it this week, look for it. Look for, look for the Trinity to show up in Romans 8. The, the toughest part of prepping for this sermon for me this week was saying, okay, how do we condense all of this stuff that's good here in Romans 8 about the Trinity and what he's doing, what he's done? How do we condense that down into a way that shows everybody a very clear, faithful, good introduction to who God is and to the hope that he offers us? And then to do that in 8 to 10 minutes, right? And so, so here's my stab at that. This morning I want to show us that we can have hope in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have hope in the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8 we learn that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee that God's promises will be fulfilled. A guarantee. The language that, that Paul uses here in Romans 8 is he says the Spirit is the first fruits of what God is doing. And so, so if you're here and if you're a farmer or grew up on a farm, or if you garden or grew up around gardening, you know that first fruits are these first samples 
of, of everything that's going to come with the crop that you planted. That there's just proof that, okay, there's corn here, or there are peppers here, or there are strawberries here. There are first fruits guaranteeing that more is coming. And in the same way, the Spirit as the first fruits shows us that everything the Spirit is doing for us now, changing our desires from the inside out, giving us assurance of God's love for you and everything else the Spirit does in us and for us, that's just a glimpse, but a guarantee that everything God said he would do for us is going to happen. It's done, right? Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit in us. The Spirit also comes alongside of us in our helplessness. And I, I love that Romans 8 includes this, this mention of the Spirit, what he does for us. Because after all that Paul has said about the, the bigness of our hope, the, the renewed creation, how big and how glorious that is, even after he's painted a picture of that hope for us, Paul still knows there may be times that we struggle to maintain hope. Even with this hope in front of us, of everything God has promised, there will still be times when we feel helpless. And so in verses 26 and 27, we see the Spirit doesn't abandon us in our helplessness. No, he, he comes alongside of us. When our tank is empty, when we feel like we can't do anything else, when we don't know how we can still hope, the Spirit helps us. Verse 26 in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, in our helplessness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And then he who searches the hearts, our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for us, for God's people, in accordance with the will of God. So the Holy Spirit is presently in us, individually indwelling us as a guarantee that what God has promised, he will fulfill. And then coming alongside of us, even in our helplessness, keeping us pointed towards God, interceding for us in our weakness. That's how strong our hope is. The Holy Spirit, his presence with us and in us shows us how strong our hope is. We also find hope in the plan of God the Father. God is all over this passage. The Father and his plan is all over this passage. But the place I'm going to focus our attention very narrowly this morning is on verses 31 and 32, where we see how great and good and strong God's plan for us is. So, so verse 31, about halfway through the verse, Paul picks up and he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And that is such a great question. If God is for us, and God is for you, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We see here that we can have such a strong hope in the future that God has planned for us because we have such a strong confidence in the past 
what God has already done for us, right? And giving his son up for us all. The connection Paul draw here, draws here is very direct. Paul says, hey, if God did that for you, for us, if God gave Jesus up for us, how will he not also, along with him, give us everything else he's promised us? That is how sure our hope is. And then we find hope in the love of Christ. The, the end of Romans 8 crescendos up to one of the greatest paragraphs on how strong Christ's love for us and for you is. Listen closely to these verses, and if, if you're into this sort of thing, this is, this is one of the places I encourage people, close your eyes. Let the reading of these words just sink deeply in for you. Digest these words, however you do it. Let them sink deeply in. Romans 8, verse 35, Paul asks a great question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then, and then that question, when we think about it, a lot of us here have asked that question. Does Jesus still love me? If, if that happened in my life, or if I'm facing that, can Jesus still put up with me? Or is this just proof that he's against me? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Shall hardship? Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then Paul answers his own question with this very resounding no. <laughs> no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. From the love of God that has already been shown in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how strong our hope is. This passage crushes any questions or doubts that we may have about the strength of Jesus' love for us and about the strength of Jesus' love to see us through to the end. Nothing can separate us from the love that has already been shown to you. Nothing. That's good news. Remembering what everything we've, or, or, or now, now let's remember what everything we've, we've been talking about falls under. We're, we're talking about who we have hope in and how confident that makes us about what we're hoping for. You see, we have hope in what God says because we can trust in who God is. That is how strong and sure and confident and good our hope as followers of Jesus Christ is. In a very small way, <laughs> This made me think of Babe Ruth's called shot in the 1932 World Series where, where he gets up to bat, points to the center field bleachers, and then on the very next pitch, if I'm getting my story right, on the very next pitch, he hits a home run to that spot, right? Now, Babe Ruth's career backed up that called shot. He knew what he could do 
And so that probably gave him some confidence in pointing towards those center field bleachers. If I got up to bat in a major league stadium, pointed to the bleachers, people would still be moving up. And they'd be laughing, right? But, but, but because of who Babe Ruth is, because of how his career had already broken so many batting records, when he pointed that direction to the center field bleachers, he knew what he could do. And in, in a similar way, it's because of who God is that we trust where he's pointing us. It's because of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that there is no question that he's going to knock it out of the park, right? Better even than we think. That's hope. That's the incomparable hope that we have to look forward to. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we have so much to hope for and we have so much to hope in. What we've seen is true. Knowing Jesus really does offer incomparable hope. So let me finish very quickly by looking at three interconnected takeaways that flow straight from what we've already seen. First takeaway, trust God. Everything we've seen in this passage already so far shows us that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is good and he's for us. He's been doing stuff for us since eternity past, culminating in what he's done for us in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. He's doing stuff for us right now through the Holy Spirit in this place and in us. He's, he's got stuff planned for us in the future. That's the good God that we serve. Our hope is secure because of what because of what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do, and because of who God is. That's how strong our hope is. And so for all of us here this morning, I want to do something that we just keep inviting you to do here at Brookside. We never want to get far away from just reminding ourselves who God is. And Romans 8 gives us such a great and good picture of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what he's doing for you, for us. But then for some of you, the, the single best thing you can do today is to get very personal with trusting God. And not just trust God again and just know that he's trustworthy, but, but to place your trust in God in a very conscious, conscious decisive way. For some of you, that might, that might be a reaffirmation of your trust in God. We've already done that, but you know that things have been crazy enough lately. You just need to recenter yourself on the biblical truth that God's got it and that God's good. Or, or for some of you, the, the single best thing you can do this morning is to place your trust in God for the first time. To place your trust in Jesus for the first time. Because you say, Tim, if, if everything you've shown me about God is true, that he's good, the things that he's been doing in the past, the present, what he's got going for me in the future, if that's true, and if that's what God offers to all who follow him, then I want to place my trust in him. So, so for some of you, the single best thing you can do this morning is just to very consciously place your trust in the God of the Bible. In his son, Jesus Christ. And in the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. Second takeaway. 
is that we wait patiently. I'm getting this straight from verse 25, where, where Paul writes that if we wait for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, now waiting for anything can be tough. If my latest iPhone update takes longer than I think it should, I'm impatient. If I'm three deep in the checkout line at the store, I'm tapping my foot, right? Waiting patiently for anything can be tough, but especially when we're waiting for what God has for us that he's shown us here. For redeemed bodies, our full adoption as sons and daughters. Waiting is tough because of what we're waiting through. Suffering, chronic suffering or acute suffering, prolonged suffering is not easy to wait through. But wait, we must. And the longer we wait, the more tempted we are towards despair or cynicism or anxiety. And so, so this morning, the thing I want to do is just call us back from any of those things and just put in front of us again this resolve to wait patiently. We wait eagerly, we wait expectantly, and we wait patiently, trusting in who God is and what he's got for us. And then the last takeaway is that we show hope. This is really where trusting God and waiting patiently should lead. Because, because as we show hope, this is really just a way of showing that we're trusting God, right? Waiting patiently. As we do these things, we do show hope. And I think hope can, can be one of the defining characteristics of Christians. I think we live in a world that, that needs hope. And we live in a world that still resonates with hope. And what better hope is there than the hope of the gospel message that Jesus has already done the greatest thing anybody has ever needed to do for us in our place on the cross we can have his indwelling spirit in us, and God's got great things planned for us in the future. That's hope. And as we show that sort of hope, I think people will be compelled by that and drawn into the work that God is doing in us, in you, in our church. And I was intentional with my language here when I talk about showing hope. I don't want us just to, just to have hope. I mean, I, I want that. But as a church, I want us to show hope. I want us to show hope to each other so that way when others are going through their struggles, we come alongside them and we are tangible expressions of God's love for them. So we show hope. And this doesn't mean we've always got some cheesy smile on our face. It doesn't mean we ignore our issues, our problems, our sufferings, nothing like that. What showing hope means is that we maintain this steadfast trust and who God is. And, and we do this in very visible ways. So that way the other kids on campus at our universities can see us living visibly with hope. So that way the people in our apartment complex can see us living visibly with hope. So that way moms and dads, your kids see hope in you. So that way kids, your parents see hope in you. Our neighborhoods, our workplaces, this is a chance for all of us to show hope. And then we extend hope by continuing to proclaim the message of the gospel and all of the good news that it contains. We show hope by, by serving others 
and showing them dignity in small ways and in big ways. Because as we're tangible expressions of Jesus' love for others, that shows hope, that gives hope to others. Now just imagine the difference that can make in a church of people living that way. Imagine what difference that can make for us in this community here today. Imagine what difference that can make for the city as we live that way and live with hope. Imagine what difference that can make around the world as we bring hope to places that need to see it. And then imagine what difference that can make in your life today for you. So, so, so pick that worry that's been consuming your thoughts, taking up all your spare energy, and just insert hope into that equation. What difference can hope make in your life today? By God's grace and by the incomparable grace that he has shown us and the hope we have in Jesus, may this sort of hope be true of us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you that you are a God of hope and a God who for all of us here today continues to offer hope. God, I thank you that through your identity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that in in each of those persons of the Trinity, we find things to place our hope in, and so we know our hope is strong. So Father, my request is that you you would just remind us of that hope in the innermost parts of our being today. And then as a church, may we show hope to others and be expressions of that to a world that so desperately needs it. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.